0: What has helped me the most in grief has been one-on-one counseling. Being part of a suicide prevention community. What
1: has helped me the most has been speaking about it.
0: My name is Virginia. Robert.
1: Haley. Hi, my name is Talinda. My name is David.
0: I'm Dr. Jennifer Ashton, and this is Life After Suicide. Today we're going on a spiritual journey with Rabbi David Seth Kirshner. How could God let this happen? How do you answer that question?
1: We are not the first people to address this question of why me? Why you? Look how lucky you are to be chosen to respond to some of these things, whereas otherwise you couldn't have taken this role.
0: His brother, also a rabbi, died by suicide. And it was a catalyst for him to live every day like it may be his last. What I think
1: you know, Gabe's death did for my family, it did for me, is it defibrillated us into focus. Rabbi,
0: welcome and thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thank you, Dr. Ashton. Please call me David.
0: Okay, only if you call me Jen.
1: Okay, Okay. deal.
0: So um, we met uh, through this connection of losing loved ones to suicide, which is probably the last way people would want to meet Um, But we found an immediate connection. Can you share a little bit about how often you've had that experience, particularly about suicide? And and I know it's painful and upsetting, but can you also share a little bit about your brother Gabriel and, um, you know, not just how he died, but really how he lived?
1: Of course. When, When my brother Gabe died, it was 1996. And like most cases of suicide, we were wholly unprepared as a family. And his death catapulted us into a fraternity of scores of people who are survivors of suicide. Their loved ones had committed suicide. And it's a fraternity you're totally unaware of until you're entered into it. And it's a sad secret handshake that we had to learn. But we learned it and we were strengthened by so many people who came before us and helped pave the way. And we feel like it's our responsibility to help others who go through that as a family – And addressing any of the needs that they have or challenges that are going to come or the waves that hit us when we're dealing with suicide. It's just – it's a real issue and there is no textbook on it. Um, My brother was a rabbi. Before he was a rabbi, he was my brother and 13 years older than I am and two other brothers in between me and my brother Gabe. And my father moved around a lot and – It caused all of us to move around a lot. So my brother wanted some stability. So he went to a boarding school, a yeshiva school, and he came back very different from that. We didn't quite know what caused him to be different. But his whole life, he kind of uh, marched to a different beat and had different rhythms about him. And he had gone to rabbinical school. He got married. He had a beautiful baby girl. And we really thought his life was on track. And in a pretty sudden way – Relative to time, he got off track, and on July 17th of 1996, he took his own life. Uh, I was studying in Israel at the time. I was actually leading a trip, and uh, I'll never forget that phone call um, that I got from my parents. I remember um, when my good friend was with me and he said, you have to call home. You kind of know that there was something up, right? Like it's not a call that you look forward to. Your friend doesn't say you need to call home. He was standing right next to me. And I remember saying in my head, "Okay, whoever answers the phone, whether my mother answers the phone, that means my dad has died. And if my dad answers the phone, it means my mother has died. And little did I know that they would both answer the phone, which would totally stymie me at the time. And I thought, what could be such a grave issue that I'm interrupted? And they're crying as soon as I answered the phone. And I said, what happened? I had no idea. And they didn't say Gabe died. They say Gabe committed suicide. It's the first thing they said to me, Gabe committed suicide. And almost like the patella reflex, you know, where you hit the knee and it kicks up, I said a prayer that you're supposed to say when someone dies. You say, praised are you at or God who judges in truth. And I've said that prayer when older people die, but I don't know why that was my instinct. It's not like I was oh-so-religious at the time. I mean, I was studying to be a rabbi, um, but it just was this reflex. And shortly after, I, I jumped on a plane and I went home. And, uh, you know, God works in mysterious ways, Jen. So I'm on the airplane and I'm sitting down and I'm going through these fits of sleeping and then waking up crying and then sleeping and then waking up crying. And the people next to me were very ginger uh, in dealing with me. They knew something was up. And about an hour before we landed, they said, are you okay, sir? I said, no, I'm, I'm going home from my brother's funeral. And they knew I was a young man that my brother couldn't have been that much older. And I told them everything that had happened and that he has a little baby girl. And they said, what you have to do is you have to record the service. It sounds grotesque, but you must make an audio recording of the service. And I said, well, why would I do that? They said, because one day someone's going to name someone after your brother. And you need to have all of these anecdotes and stories and beautiful pieces put together to show how loved he is and was. And also his little girl who was two and a half at the time, she needs it and we did it. And the irony is we named my son, uh, his middle name after my brother and he has these anecdotes and stories about him from his eulogies and his daughter does who's a you know, grown adult, graduated college now. So um, you know, to think at that time in 1996 on that plane ride that I could be here in a way and digesting that reality – has been an incredible journey. It hasn't been easy all the time, but there have been parts that, you know, with hills and valleys um, that have been really meaningful.
0: You used a term that I want you to elaborate on. You say, Gabe, committed suicide. I'm sure you're aware that right now there's a lot about choosing different words. And instead of saying committed suicide, saying died by suicide or uh, death by suicide. You're very deliberate when you use the word committed suicide, and you've told me um, when I interviewed you for my book, Life After Suicide, that you think that that is important to busting this stigma or the scarlet letter that we have in this country about mental illness. Explain what you mean by that.
1: Part of this has to do with the stigma. Part of this has to do with this notion that I call the cooties, that everyone's afraid of it and that we um, we think there could be a vaccine for it. And there's no such thing, just like with cancer. And I think one of the things we have to do to break the stigma is to just say it, to say that people can commit suicide, they die of suicide, that it is – mental illness is a disease that is no different than cancer. I've spoken uh, in my synagogue you know the the first, when i was hired uh, 13 years ago the very first sermon i gave on the high holidays we have a very large crowd on the high holidays like most synagogues and um i decided to talk about gabe's death and to talk about the fact that he had committed suicide and i wish i could tell you that i was such a conscious rabbi that i thought of all of the ramifications of doing it and why i was doing it but like much of what i do it just happens on inertia and then hopefully good things come afterwards <laughs> um And it did, and what I realized happened in doing that was twofold. One, I told the whole congregation, look, I'm no different than you. You deal with stuff. I deal with stuff. I have a family. You have a family. We have challenges, and we have uh, fantastic celebrations, and you have the same. It's no different. But I opened the floodgates because for months after that sermon, literally months, there was not a day that went by that I didn't get a visitor or a phone call of members in the synagogue who said, Thank you for talking about that, Rabbi. We've had an issue with my son. We've had an issue with my brother. We've had an issue with my daughter. i had an issue with my spouse. And what I did was, unintentionally, Jen, it was not by design, I allowed them to talk about it. And I think by saying the name suicide, saying the word of what it is, we allow people to talk about it. So in our synagogue, we have people who are afflicted with cancer. And when someone gets cancer in our synagogue, we are amazing. I'm so proud to be the rabbi of a congregation that responds where people make you know, uh, food trains and people make visitation trains so that no one is getting chemo sitting by themselves and they're helping with the carpool with the kids and they're making sure that things around the house are done and that you know anything with bills are happening, fundraisers, it's fantastic. But I wonder if someone was suffering from OCD or if someone, God forbid, were suffering from depression or someone – we're challenged with bipolar disorder, if we would, as a community, respond the same way. My hypothesis is no, and I want to change that. I want to change it so that people aren't afraid to say what those afflictions are, and that we can respond the same way, because they are serious illnesses, and there are ways for us to help.
0: So when you stand up on the bima, which is the podium, the the dais, if you will, um, if you're not familiar with the, the Jewish religion, and you're looking at how how many congregants do you have?
1: Uh, we have a little over eight hundred families.
0: So eight hundred families. families. So there could be uh, well, north of
1: three thousand people right. at times.
0: Do you go through? Do you crunch the numbers in your head? Do you say, "Wow, well, um, one in X number, one in five adults. This is a CDC CDC statistic. Will suffer from a mental illness at some point in their life." That's a lot of people in front of me. Do you do you go through that without even thinking of it?
1: You know when I see all the people I have this i've been granted this fantastic gift of being a congregational rabbi again a gift I never anticipated where it says when I see a person it's I get a people into their lives and I've been fortunate that I'm there for celebrations and there for challenging moments, and they share with me so when I see a person, I don't just see you know this person who lives at this address or this person with two kids I see the person who is you know struggling in their life who's Perhaps you know wildly in debt but no one in their life knows it or perhaps a person who is uh, gay but hasn't come out to their family yet or any of those kinds of things. Where I do see the numbers come to life, uh, Jen, is when people come to my office because I do a lot of pastoral work, a lot of chaplaincy work, a lot of counseling and rarely does a day go by where I'm not dealing with someone who's dealing with an issue. At our synagogue, we have 50 bar and bat mitzvahs a year. Some years we have 55. Some years we have 45. The number fluctuates, but it's a high number. Never do I go more than three kids when we're not dealing with a child that's dealing with a serious issue. Maybe they're depressed. Maybe they're dealing with serious anxiety. Maybe they have bipolar disorder. And being on our toes to address these things and to make sure that we are blunting any of these anxieties or things that could lead to depressive states are critical – so I don't necessarily see the numbers in the mass, but I see the numbers in the day-to-day. In front of you. Yeah.
0: So I I want to really do the deeper dive on faith and the topic of suicide. Um, I always describe myself as a deeply spiritual person, but not necessarily a deeply religious person. Um, I'm one of those people that I know you know plenty of who – probably walks into a a temple or synagogue four times a year. Um, But I think of my religion, obviously a lot more than that, but there are millions and millions of people with incredibly powerful faith of numerous religions who, when a loved one dies by suicide, they ask themselves, how could God allow this? And what about the God that I pray to every day who's supposed to be there for good? What, what reason could he or she—and by the way, at the end, I'd love to get your opinion on whether you think God could be a woman—but um, how could God let this happen? So on a broader level, just when you talk about faith and suicide, how do you answer that question?
1: So let me address the first part, which is rabbis should not take attendance— the kind of Jew or the kind of spiritual person anyone is is not contingent on how often they go to synagogue. I'd rather have someone come to synagogue Thank you. once a year <laughs> and do really great things in the world than to have them come every day and be a jerk. So oh. so that's number one. Okay. So don't So there's hope for me. There's hope for okay. a lot of people. And you're one of them. There's and I think there's not hope. I think you're living the, the right life. Okay? Thanks. So as long as you're a good person, I think you're doing the right things. That's number one. Number two. I think the "why" question is a really challenging question because it's not limited to suicide. The same can be said of cancer. The same can be said of people who are suffering from hearing differences or sight differences or any other challenges they have, or you know, perhaps they have paralysis. Anyone can say, "Why me?" Uh, I, I'm a big believer of of the notion of you know, "Why you?" Look how lucky you are to be chosen to respond to some of these things, whereas otherwise you couldn't have taken this role. Why do I take that approach? Because it's the only approach I could take. You know, I could say to God, why me, a million times, but I could also say to God, look how blessed I am in so many different ways. Now, the good news is, Jen, we are not the first people to address this question of, why me? In fact, in the third century, the Mishnah addresses the question of, why me? And the rabbis prove that they have no answer because first they say someone did something wrong and then they said, well, what if they retrace their steps? They said, well, they didn't study enough. And they go, well, what if they studied enough and they didn't do anything wrong? I said, well, it's because God loves you, right? Meaning God's going to um, love those that, that suffer through punishment rather, which is just a ludicrous answer. And all it does is tell us that the rabbis had zero clue why bad <laughs> things happen to good people. and, and No relation, but Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote this book when his son died of progeria, and he just said, why is it that bad things happen to good people and we don't have an answer? So if I can accept the fact that I can't answer that question, I can then take it to the next level and say, so what can I do with my lot in life? I can suffer or I can make change, and I'd rather do the latter.
0: We'll take a quick break in this conversation. We'll be back in a minute. You, in a very prescient way, have just turned the corner into what I actually think is the most important part of this podcast, of my book, Life After Suicide, is the word life. So how do you make that turn from suffering to recognizing that, yes, it's possible to live with gratitude? Yes, it's possible to live with purpose, with courage, um, with community, which obviously is huge in faith-based circles. Um, how did you do that specifically after Gabe died by suicide? And how do you counsel people who are suffering to make that turn? I know for me, as I shared with you, my children and I were almost intuitively, instinctively committed to not having Rob's suicide become a secondary tragedy in our life by becoming angry and bitter at the world because we have so many blessings. Um, And in a very bizarre and complicated way that I still struggle to explain, our lives in many ways feel more enriched to us now, all three of us, because we feel like we are living with greater purpose, because we feel like we are living every day to honor Rob's spirit uh, in a way that would not only make him proud but make him happy. But for people – who are having difficulty with that, how, how do you help them? How do you instruct them or advise them or counsel them to be able to take something that is so horrific and their pain which is so profound and actually live a life where not only can they be happy, but they have that purpose and that spiritual joyfulness that almost seems like it shouldn't be or couldn't be possible after living through such a tragedy?
1: So I think you're doing the perfect thing with your children in that you're posturing for them and for others around you how it is that you honor Rob's memory. And I think by living with purpose, by making sure your family stays closer together, which I would hypothesize your family has become even a tighter unit than before. Totally. Exact same thing happened to our family. Uh, I think that's the best model. When I counsel people on this, there are a few things that um, I have to stay uh, cognizant of. First of all, Not everyone metabolizes this death at the same pace or in the same way. And that's important. There's no, there's no mile marker that we say to every person, okay, by this date you should be here. And by that date you should be there. So that's number one, making sure that everyone can go at their pace. That's, that's most importantly. Secondly is people have a different recipe for making the same kinds of dishes. And (laughs) I want to be respectful of that. You know, if, if, You know, one person wants to jump headfirst into something. Another person wants to be reflective. I think we can be respectful of what that process looks like. Uh, A lot of times, and I'm very guilty of this, I think my recipe is the only recipe. And if you don't use those same ingredients and you don't mix it the same way, it won't work. And it's just not true. There are many ways to do that.
0: This coming from a man who just admitted to me before we started that you have a dog named Brisket. I love the food analogy. And Laka. And like that's right, <laughs> I have two dogs. It's a double whammy. <laughs> yeah,
1: um, I like my eats. Yeah, um, but but that's that's very very true. Um, so I, I think creating that space where people can go at different paces is really important thing to do. The next thing is I was just talking um, with one of the uh, medical interns who works here about how it is that we transition from pain into action, and often when we create activities, memorials, reminders, fundraisers, it's a really good outlet for us to transition all of the tragedy and pain and suffering into moments of bringing the person's memory to a higher place. So I'm a real big advocate of thinking of ways in which we can do that, whether it's through charity, living the way that they live, special foundations, any of these things. I think that's a very critical thing to make happen.
0: And you've written extensively about this, and you actually had um, an acronym called SARA. Explain to our listeners what SARA stands for, and also, if you could, your checklist, your, your writings on dealing with mental illness, because I think that um, can get even more attention um, because it's
1: such an important
0: and helpful topic.
1: So I didn't coin SARA, but I use it proudly. SARA is an acronym for SHOCK anger, resentment, and acceptance. And those are the steps that people go through in dealing with a lot of challenges and tragedies in their life and in particular with suicide. And I think it happens in a micro and macro form. You're going to deal with shock, anger, resentment, acceptance in the first hours, the first weeks, the first years. So it definitely has concentric circles to it. The second piece is um, I, I wrote a blog not long ago about this. And I suggested four things that people incorporate into their life. And the first is don't whisper mental illness. It it, it reminds me like we could say if someone has cancer, we say they're suffering from breast cancer or um, they have uh, congestive heart failure. But we say they they have bipolar disorder or they're suffering from depression. Why why can't we say that in a full throated way and put them on an equal plane? I think that's going to help breaking the stigma. And frankly, the same way that we did for so many other civil rights issues like people who are uh, openly gay or people in equal rights times for men and women. like We have to be advocates for this and put it on an even playing field. That's really, really critical. Um, I think that's important. And I think the next thing that comes naturally from that is how do we say to the person who's suffering from depression or who's suffering from bipolar disorder, we're going to help serve you dinner. We're going to make a food train for the next few weeks while you're working through your stuff because – we did that for a friend who has cancer, and we want to be helpful to you too. We want to help pick up your kids and run errands because it's going to be a resource to you.
0: And that should go on not just in faith-based communities but all over.
1: I think it should go on in communities. Right. You do not have to be a member of a synagogue or a church for that to happen. Right. Uh, there, are, In fact, in our synagogue, most of the people who are part of those circles are doing it because they're on the PTA together. Their kids go to school together. Their soccer parents together. So those are the natural orbits of which people live, and I think that will be a place in which that can happen.
0: As a rabbi, David, you are, I mean, I can't even imagine, it must be the equivalent to being a doctor, thousands and thousands of hours of reading, studying, writing. Do you have rabbi tests? I guess you must, right? We did, sure. Okay, exams. The topic of, I guess you would call it metaphysical connection,
1: So interestingly, if I sat on an airplane and I told everyone for real what I did uh, when I sat next to them, the number one question everyone asks, I'd say 9 out of 10 is, what does Judaism say about life after death?
0: Are you serious? Number
1: one question. I get it from Jewish people, non-Jewish people, from everyone. It's the number one question. And I think it's the number one question because it's the unanswered question. We don't have a whole list of people who have died and come back and can tell us exactly what happens and what we believe. And as a rabbi – you know, I had a lot of tests and a lot of studying and a lot of books I had to read, very ill-prepared on this topic and a lot of other pastoral roles. It's much like, imagine, being a physician, you got a lot of training when you were in the field, right. in, in the operating room, you know, by people's bedside, examining, those kinds of things. Totally. Very similar. You can not you can talk in theory all day long about what it is, but when you're sitting across from someone who's dealing with real challenge, there's nothing to prepare you for it. So – I had this great case once of a person who was dying and they said, what happens? Where's, where's my dad going to go? I said, well, we, we don't know. And that was wildly unsatisfying to this person. And they just kept pushing me and pushing me until I had to tell them what I personally believe. Now, when you ask about that spiritual feeling, you have to understand a little bit about what makes David Kirshner, David Kirshner. So, David Kirshner is the youngest of four sons, and he was born nine years after the sibling closest to him, 13 and a half years after the sibling oldest that he is. He was only born to be a namesake for his maternal grandfather, who died, and my mother said at a late age she wanted to have a child just to name after him. I was born three years. <laughs> wow. And, yes. She uh,
0: just admitted that.
1: Oh, she admitted that, you know, from the get go. Everyone says, Was <laughs> he a mistake? Not a mistake. We planned to have him just to name after my father. Thanks, Mom. (laughs) Exactly. Well, here's the crazy part. I'm born three and a half weeks late, the same day he died a year later.
0: Okay. So I hear that. At his
1: unveiling is when I was born. I hear that and I go, not a coincidence. Correct. Meaning I I was born into a life of spirituality. You have to have some belief there. And if you ask my mother, my mother will say, of course, that's why it happened. It was God. It was her father. It was all combined. And she knew in utero that I was going to be a namesake for her dad. Right? So- So I think inherently when those things happen, you have to believe in some sense of a higher power. Um, When my dad died, people said to me all the time, they go, you're going to talk to your dad. You're going to talk to your dad. Now, my dad's been gone for over seven years and I don't talk to him, but my dad was a singer. He loved to sing and I hear him singing to me all the time. And to me, when I hear those voices or I hear some of the music that I'm now attracted to that I hated when I was a kid and he used to play – I hear him and I feel him. And to me, that's the spiritual part, like where we can hear their voices, what they're about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have that in many different places. And I would say to people, yes, there are pockets when these pieces come through. And to me, it's supernatural. To me, it is the connection. And again, there is no blueprint for what this looks like for every person. But I think there are moments when you feel that. For my mom, it was clearly on my birth and being the namesake. For my dad, it's when I hear some of that music, or I pass by you know some of the old classical or operatic pieces, and I think of him and his his history um and even with my brother, whenever I see a marathon, whenever I see he was a vegetarian from a young age before it was before ever, it was in style ever hip to be a vegetarian. in fact, most people when he was young would call him a veterinarian because he had no idea what a vegetarian <laughs> oh was in those that's days. hilarious but whenever I think about some of the crazy dishes that he introduced to our family that are very in vogue now. I think about him and those are those pockets where I feel that connection and that that energy come.
0: But I guess – so you're saying that when when I say, well, that's not a coincidence, um, it's more than just feeling a connection. It's when people say, you know, I was going through a closet and I found this. It's been lost for 10 years and it's something or other, you know, connected to a person who's no longer alive that that kind of thing is – it's kind of a spectrum, I guess is what you're saying, of continuity between a connection like hearing your dad's music and thinking of him and that kind of intervention like you being
1: born on your grandfather's birthday. I would say those things are conduits. Right. And you know, in my closet, I keep my dad's cardigan hanging. Now, my father wore a cardigan when it was 112 degrees outside. He was always cold. He just had a sweater on all the time. Right. And for me, when I touch that cardigan, and granted, you know, nine out of 10 days these days, I pass by that cardigan, I don't think about it. But there are days when I hold on to that cardigan and I touch it. And to me, it's a conduit to him. It's a conduit to that energy. It's a conduit to that magic. And I think there are lots of conduits out there that create that moment of energy, magic, memory, that make people feel a connection, and that's where God is for a lot of people when that happens. If you ask my mother why I was born three and a half weeks late the same day he died while his unveiling is happening, she'll say, because God did that.
0: You, uh, When when I was interviewing you and talking to you, uh, David, for my book, you shared that after your brother died by suicide, in your family, you kind of took on this cut-the-crap um, philosophy or mindset. You probably had a little of it before, but it was kind of amplified. I know for sure that was the case with us. Um you and I uh traded kind of examples of this in our lives, but after you live through suicide or someone the the loss of someone you love or know by suicide, I think it does kind of it puts things in a different perspective and context, right? And you know, another way of saying cut the crap would be don't sweat the small stuff, right? But Correct. but share if you could specific ways that you embody the cut the crap kind of philosophy.
1: So can I, can I start by telling you, you know, how it felt when we heard this news? Totally. So when I found out that Gabe died and, and I was you know, living with it, I likened it to walking down the street and someone pouring out boiling hot water from their balcony and it lands on your back. So the first thing that happens is you're like, oh my god, what just hit me? And the second thing, you're like, oh my god, I just got splashed. What is that? It's water. And then you realize it's boiling water and then it starts to blister and welt and you're in excruciating pain and that's exactly what the metaphor was. And because of that metaphor, because of what happened, you really – at first, you start to be careful every time you walk down the street and you start to look in all different directions and then you realize how it is that you can really focus and – um Put the right lenses on to have conversations about what really matters because there's so many ancillary – I'm trying to keep my language clean here (laughs) – so many ancillary, fluffy things that people incorporate into their lives that just waste so much time. It's just all on the margins and you realize what are the core things that matter – family, friends, sincerity, being genuine, kind, loving, supportive. All the rest is crap. It really is crap and what I think – you know, Gabe's death did for my family, it did for me, is it defibrillated us into focus. And I think that if there is some blessing in this process um, and in the tragedy of his death, it is that we now have a different rhythm about us and a different focus, that we really don't let the petty things get in our way. We really see when someone is suffering or someone has a challenge, or we can make a difference in any way. That our presence matters and we make an energy towards doing that because otherwise, what was the purpose of his life if we can't put it into our system, into our lives, into our hands and feet and making a difference in the world?
0: And I think that that's absolutely true. You mentioned at the beginning um, his daughter now is graduated college? Or? Yeah.
1: She just turned 25, Just surreal.
0: And you're obviously very close with her how do you and your family your extended family keep gabe's memory alive and, and relevant not just for your niece his daughter but but also for you and and your family how do you um how do you stay connected with him and his memory if you do
1: so we do so it's hard for his daughter um, she was young when he died and for our family, every time we were near her, it became hyper emotional for us, which was so unfair to her. Here she is as this this sweet, innocent, funny kid and incredibly bright, just like Gabe. And we would see her and she would have this mannerism and then we would all start to get emotional where we'd say, oh, and um, it would bring a silence in the room. And that was very hard for her and hard for us and it became unfair. And as she got older – we put it upon ourselves to really share Gabe's history, his values, his his what we call in Yiddish shtick, right? Mm-hmm. Like his idiosyncrasies and also like his passions with her. So my brother Gabe was a passionate runner. He was a marathoner and I saved a lot of his marathon shirts and I gave her one. And my brother Gabe served in the Air Force and we gave her a lot of his fatigues from the time in which he was in the Air Force and talked about you know what it was that he did and what made him unique. and. She can't compare and contrast those in real time. So we have to do that for her. So that's important. Uh, in our tradition, we name after people who have died who we love. And my son carries Gabe's name and his middle name. And uh, I think that definitely strengthens the bond that I have with him. But it's already you know naturally there. And we talk about him a lot. We talk about Uncle Gabe, the uncle they didn't know, and what were his characteristics. What did he like? And apparently my parents tell me that I have a lot of Gabe shtick as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them make me really proud and some of them make me roll my eyes. But that's what it is to have a brother. Right. So there's rarely a time that we don't engage his memory as a family. Set the Passover Seder is coming up. I'm sure his memory will be invoked many times, some with some of his idiosyncrasies and some with some of his wisdom.
0: That's incredible. Um in wrapping up, uh, I have two two final questions for you, David. One is, again, um, for people who are listening who may not be Jewish but uh, have deep faith. What's your advice to them if they're struggling with grief, you know, or a range of emotions after the uh, loss of someone to suicide?
1: The first thing I would say to them, it, regardless of faith, is look in the mirror and say to themselves, "It's okay. It's normal to feel." grief, but you can't always overcome this grief by yourself. And what I counsel people on all the time, when they come and see me and they're dealing with a serious issue, I'm happy to talk to them. The first thing I do after I talk to them is I give them the names of two physicians, psychiatrists that can help them on their journey. And I want to stay a shepherd in their process. I want to I want to check in with them. I want to know they're okay. I want them to know that I can always be there. But there are professionals that deal with these challenges and they need to see them Rabbis and priests are great shepherds to lead you to those places, but we're not always equipped to deal with the severity of the issues that people are dealing with. So I would tell them, it's okay to feel this way, and it's okay to seek help, and it will get better. It doesn't mean that their death gets better, but you become better equipped to learn how to live with that reality, and that's the difference. I'm sure in the case of Rob, like it is in the case of Gabe, the reality of their death doesn't become easier, but we learn better how to manage every day in the wake of their death.
0: I want to thank Rabbi Kirshner for joining us today. One of the similarities in all of our guests has been that they've all been incredibly open and honest, and I've learned a lot from each conversation. If you're just joining us, please go back and listen to our discussion with Melissa Rivers, Linda Bennington, my daughter Chloe Ashton, James Longman, DJ Nash, and the professionals, Dr. Draper, Dr. Simring, and Dr. Von Dahlen. Let me know some of your most inspiring moments in the comments or on social media at drjashton. The ripple of sudden loss is real, and our goal is to be a resource and inspiration for as many people as possible. So please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and give us a review and a rating. We have a lot of really fascinating guests coming up on future episodes. Next week, my guest is going to be Cheryl Sandberg. She invited me to her office at Facebook to talk about the sudden loss of her husband and how she's dealt with the grief. This podcast wouldn't be happening without you, our subscribers, and my top-notch team here at ABC News. So thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing. And thanks to Eric Strauss, Ann Reynolds, Tara Gimbel, Trevor Hastings, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kalb, and Kevin Ryder. If you're struggling with thoughts of suicide or worried about a friend or loved one, help is available. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org for free, confidential, emotional support 24 hours a day, 7 days a week.